I want to remind you, we're in a, we started a series last week, and we are in that series yet um, for a few more weeks. Um, actually, it'll take us up to our holiday season. And the series is called Swimming Upstream. Swimming Upstream. And uh, what we're doing in this series, we're looking at these two, um, these two prophets from the book of, books of First and Second Kings, and, um, and they are curiously... I want that. Are you kidding me? All right. Um, <clears throat> We're looking at these two prophets um, that, are, that are, you know, confusingly similarly named, Elijah and Elisha, and the way that God used them to, uh, to engage a culture that was moving away from him, and, um, and how often their, their story and their lives parallels our own. But as we saw last week, we actually see three groups present in these stories. We talked about, last, last week we talked about 1 Kings 17, and we were introduced to this character of Elijah. And Elijah is a prophet of God. He's someone, his name actually means one with God. That he, when he spoke, he spoke in the place of God. And so we were introduced to Elijah. We will, in a few weeks, be introduced to Elisha, who is a, a different person um, that, that comes alongside Elijah. Um, we were also, last week, introduced to Ahab and Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel were a king and queen, um, Ahab being the king and Jezebel being well, a Jezebel, um, and, and Ahab and Jezebel represented for us in the story this dysfunctional power, this power structure that exists, that's, that was moving within the culture, and, and they were the people that Elijah was, was speaking out against. He, his, his prophetic voice, his voice that, that called out what was wrong, he was calling out what was going on with, with Ahab and Jezebel. And, and the significant problem here with Ahab and Jezebel is that they had introduced idols to, to God's people. They brought foreign gods into the country. And then the last group that we were introduced to is this remnant group. And uh, in, in 1 Kings 17, there was a widow. And this widow is someone who just faithfully did as God put in front of her. She said yes to God um, on, on multiple occasions and in increasing ways that, that her faith was stretched. Um, but, but throughout these stories, when we, when we go through this series, throughout these stories, we're going to see people who are responding to the, the call of God or the call of that dysfunctional power, that, that, that power in the culture. And that's why we've taken this series and, and called it Swimming Upstream. That, that in, in, at any point in time in, in history, there is a flow of culture. There's a, a flow of society and the way things are going and, and what happens naturally. And that's represented in these stories by Ahab and Jezebel. They, they push things a certain direction. And it's probably in the short term, not probably, it's almost always in the short term, just easier to go with the flow, right? Um, where I grew up uh, in Florida, we used, to, we used to go tubing, okay? And for some folks, tubing is like being pulled around by a, a, a ski boat. But in, where I grew up in Florida, tubing was you literally, we got a, an inner tube from a car and put on our suit and we just jumped in the river and floated, right? Um, and, um, and so we would do this, and you would just go wherever the current of the river took you. And, and for many of us, when we think about this series, for many of us, that's what we're kind of talking about. For, for a lot of folks at different points in time, but certainly it's alive and well today, we're just sort of tubing in culture. We're just sort of floating along. And, and for, for members of the remnant, for people who aren't necessarily... At, in, in charge of the power, and, and, and for people who aren't necessarily like the, the vocal, the voice of God, but for most of us, we're confronted with these challenges. 
of just floating down the river or pushing our way upstream. And I want to just present something to you because there's probably something that if you pay attention, you've probably noticed, um, you've probably noticed some of this, but, um, but it's, it's, it's statistically borne out to be true, okay? Uh, we, we mentioned this last week, but let me show you some of the, some of the data. Um, our, our culture is shifting and changing when it comes to the things that we just value. Um, and I want to give you some Golop, Golop, sorry, that's Gallup. Um, Gallup polling data, the, the, the same question has been asked of Americans going back actually into the 1940s now. And it's, it's what, like, what is your religious affiliation? Like, what do you affiliate with? So do, what do you claim as your own religion? And in 1950, in 1950, 91% of Americans claimed some form of Christianity. Okay? Now, I, I think it's perfectly fair for us to say there were there were more than 9% of Americans in 1950 who weren't really authentically following Christ, okay? But 91% of Americans claim Christianity, and, and then on the, the far end is kind of the number that we're looking at here. Only 5% of Americans said they have no religion, okay? The irreligious are what's become known, called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S's. It, it only made up 5% of the U.S. population. In 1970, those numbers held pretty much the same, okay, when people answer those 20 years later. But in 1990, we start to see something, right? In 1990, and, and I can sort of remember these days being a, a, a young man in, involved in churches and different things at this point in time, there started to be this discussion of this shift taking place culturally. It was kind of like the very first signs of this. And, and in 1990, the same, the same poll, the same organization asking the same question, they, we, we, there was a 10% drop, a 10% drop in those claiming to be Christian. And, and you see where the, there's large gains in other religions at that point, and that nun group almost doubled from 1970 to 1990. And then again in a 20-year jump. Uh-oh. Oh, there it is. Well, let's just go to today. Okay. So <laughs> that's what happens when you hit the forward button twice. Um, in, in 2010, that number dropped further, and, but look at what happened on the nun's side of the, the, the table. That number is significantly larger, and then in the last just six years, since 2010, again, Gallup polling does this, asks this question every year. Okay, they, they do this. You can trace this research all the way back to the 1940s. Only 69% of Americans claim some form of Christianity. The, the, the other religious group is kind of floating there around 8 to 10%, but this nun group is expanding. Okay? It's expanding. And I saw recently um, someone commented and, and their comment was, yeah, I know that statistically about two-thirds of Americans claim to be Christian, but they just don't work with me, and they don't live near me. And, 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 and the, the research seems to bear that out, that, that our culture is shifting, and it's shifting away from what we would say, like, God's, God's perspective, God's word, and, and, and it's moving in a direction, now, all that to say, if we look at that trend data and the way that it's accelerating, right, if these patterns hold true, and I'm not, here to, I'm not predicting here, I'm not saying that these patterns will hold true, but if they do hold true, in very short order, those numbers are going to balance out. And probably, young people, in your lifetime, you're probably going to live in a culture where those numbers might even be reversed, there's a little bit of a test case in this across the Atlantic and in, in Europe. And these, the numbers we see today are the same numbers roughly from about 100 years ago in Europe. And Europe today, most, most European countries, at least most Western European countries, 
are identifying at, at around 10 to 15 percent Christian. Okay? 10 to 15 percent Christian and roughly somewhere around 70 to 75 percent no religion at all. And so it's, it's not, not only is it not inconceivable, it seems like the same conditions that we might find in First and Second Kings with Elijah and Elisha, that these might be the conditions that we are moving towards culturally. That, that, that true, authentic, sincere faith in Christ is diminishing in its influence, it's diminishing in how common it is, and we're, we may find that this remnant lifestyle, this remnant living, is, is what where we wind up living our lives within our own culture. I would, I would contend, I would say, some of you, you, you see the numbers and you might agree with that, like where are the 69%? I feel like I'm constantly being challenged because of my faith. I feel like I'm, I'm being passed over because, because I'm an authentic Christian. I refuse to, take, to, to not take a stand for Christ. You're already experiencing these things, and I would say that yes, we are. Yes, we are. But the question for us is, what does it mean to live as a remnant? We're gonna, we're, today, we're going to look at 1 Kings 18. If you've got your Bible and you turn to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings is about, it's about a quarter of the way through the Bible. It's an Old Testament book. The books of First and Second Kings were originally one book. They were split into two to sort of help us find different things more quickly. But as, we, as you turn to 1 Kings 18, I want to say a few things more just about that cultural trend. The first thing is this. I am so thankful that the truth about God is not dependent upon popular vote, okay? I am so thankful that we have a history to draw upon, that God, that God moved his people to tell their stories of what it's like to live when the cultural, culture around me is pushing in against faith in Christ, faith in God. I'm thankful that it's not bound by popular opinion, that the, the majority doesn't get to decide whether or not God is real. He is real. And I'm thankful that he's given us instructions or a guide for how to live when that pressure is mounting. We don't have to do this alone. So when we look at 1 Kings 18, remember last, last week we were introduced to those three characters, Elijah, Ahab and, Ahab, and Jezebel, and then this remnant in chapter 17, it was a widow. There was a widow who was someone who said yes to God. Um, and, in, and, and in the first part of 1 Kings 18, we're gonna have to, I'm going to have to summarize a section because the, the context is important. We find at the very beginning of 1 Kings 18 that there's been a drought, right? There hasn't been rain. And that drought has lasted about three years at this point. So they haven't had rain for three years. And you can imagine that in three years' time without rain, that has significant impact on people's way of life. In the midst of that, that drought and that impact, the king, Ahab, decides that he takes one of his advisors, a man named Obadiah, and he takes Obadiah and he sends Obadiah out to find like anywhere that there's grass to feed the cattle. Like, I don't care whose land it is. I don't care where it is. You take them out. And while, while Obadiah is out there, Elijah comes to Obadiah. And he says, Obadiah, I need something from you. I need you to set up a meeting between me and Ahab. Okay? I haven't seen him in years, according to this, the, the account of the story here. And the last time I saw him, they were, they were like setting out to kill me because I said this drought was coming. Right? And so he says to Obadiah, please set up a meeting. And Obadiah does that. Now, Obadiah was a member of that remnant. Okay? Obadiah was a member of that remnant. We hear in another story that Obadiah, Obadiah when, when Ahab and Jezebel took over and they were chasing out Elijah and the other authentic followers of God, Obadiah had taken priests, true priests of God, of Jehovah, and hid them in caves and fed them. He brought them water and bread. 
and he, he had hidden them. Obadiah is a member of that remnant. And Obadiah says to Elijah, when Elijah says, I need you to set up this meeting, Obadiah says, oh, you want me to die, right? Like you, this, is, this is the kind of pressure they felt. You, this is going to cost me my life to even mention your name. But Obadiah takes that risk. Okay? One of the things we're seeing with the remnant is the risk that they take. Um, and so what, what winds up happening is that, is that Obadiah uh, uh, sets up the meeting between Elijah and, and Ahab, and Elijah says, hey, to Ahab, he says, this drought can end, but before it ends, we're going to have us a little challenge. And I'd like for you to bring the prophets of the Baals, okay, the Baals were the foreign gods, I'd like for you to bring the, the, those prophets to the mountain, and we're going to have a challenge on the mountain. And, and, and it, they wind up bringing 850 prophets. The story will turn to the 450 prophets of Baal, but there were another 400 prophets of, of the goddess Asherah, who was a, a fertility goddess. And so he says, bring them to the mountain, and we're going to meet on the mountain. And we're going we're gonna to settle this. We're going to have a battle. And when I read this, I can't help but, but be reminded of, of one of the most cathartic movies of my youth. And, and sorry, I don't have an image of it, um, but, but, but it's, it's Rocky IV, Remember Rocky IV? Those of you old enough to remember this, 1985, right? Okay, this was this movie along with a handful of others shaped my youth. But but Rocky, he, he has there's a there's a there's a Russian challenger. And by the way, I, I firmly believe that it was not you know it, this movie was was responsible for the for the end of the Cold War. Forget about President Reagan, forget about all the stuff that's going on. It was Rocky IV that ended the Cold War. Um, and so, so Rocky comes and he, he fights and, and he winds up, like this, 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 I'm sorry, this Russian comes and he fights, he winds up killing Apollo and, and Rocky has to go through, you know, the training and, and there's a press conference and he, the, the press conference, I love this moment, they're at this press conference and they're going to say, okay, Rocky's going to fight Drago, right? And he's going to fight Drago. But, but when, then when they announce it and they say, where's the fight going to take place? And he says, in Moscow, okay? Well, it's kind of like that. This story where what Elijah says to Ahab is, we're going to have this duel, and by the way, we're going to take this duel to Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel had become this holy site for, it was one of the high places you might read about in the Old Testament. It had become this site where the, the, the false prophets and the idolatrous people, they set up all their temples up on these high places. Okay? And so Elijah says, I'm going to Moscow. Okay? That's where we're going to fight. And, and what we're about to read unfolds here in 1 Kings chapter 18, we find on Mount Carmel. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20, it's where we're going to pick up the story. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20, it says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. Stop there for a second because Elijah asked this question. Your translation might say, how long will you waver between two opinions? Okay? Elijah begins this whole challenge with a question. And the question is, why are you living sort of between two worlds? Why are you choosing a life where the call of the, the idolatry of the land, you're sort of responding to that, but at the same time, you want the benefits of being the people of God. And this is where you're choosing to live. You want to have everything that God can give you, but you don't want to say no to the things that the idols of the land can give you. 
And that last phrase to me is so critical because the people were silent, right? They said nothing. And it's going to lead us to a question. And the question is, what about the bystander? What about the person who isn't necessarily engineering the evils of the culture, but the person who is just sort of going along with it, sort of tacit or silent, just, just giving in to the current and I think this story, the rest of the story, is going to say something to them and to us. So keep reading in verse 22. So the people didn't say a word. And then in verse 22, Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, or Yahweh, Jehovah. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So it's sort of like challenge accepted, right? This sounds good to us. It's an, it's an even game. We'll, we'll put two sacrifices out, and the God who answers or the God who responds is the real God. Verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. They took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, so sun up to noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Notice the similar language. They, they, they cried out and, and danced around the altar. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he's distracted, he's being entertained, or he is relieving himself. He says, he might be in the bathroom, okay? Or he's on a journey, like he's taking a trip. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. These are actually, it's fascinating, these are actually stories from other ancient God myths. There, was, there were gods who would do those things. They would go away. And why was there a drought? Well, the god was on vacation. Okay? The, gods, the god is asleep. So there were times of the day where your activities weren't seen by those gods. And Elijah is calling out to his culture. And, and he's, he's, he's saying, come on. Which is it? Why is it that your god can't deliver? Verse 28, and they cried aloud. And it says, and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. Their, their efforts became more intense. Their God wasn't delivering, and so they turned to even, to even self-harm as a way to get their God's attention. Verse 29, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation, or it's a time frame, this would be mid-afternoon to early evening. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. They went on all day. And it's, no, it's not a small thing that it actually mentions this, this sacrifice of oblation or this gift of oblation. It was to set a time. This sacrifice that it mentions here is like the last, it's the last offering of the day. So they went from sunup through noon, through the rest of the day, to essentially what that offering of oblation would have meant was this was it. When you gave this offering, that was the last time of the day that offerings were accepted in the temples. And so they went about it all day long. 
But look at what it says. No one answered. No one paid attention. There was no idol, no God to respond to their cries. They came to the, to the last hour of the day and they had, they'd cried out louder. They'd cut themselves. They'd danced, they'd screamed, but still there was no response. So keep reading with me. Verse 30, Elijah said to the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. You see, there was already an altar on Mount Carmel. This wasn't introduced to us in the story until this point, but there was an, already an altar that was there. That this was a place that was, that was recognized by the followers of Jehovah God as a place that was, that was special and distinct. But that altar hadn't been used. It had been cast aside. It had crumbled. And Elijah calls the people together and he says, let's rebuild this. Let's put it back together. And you see, this is what God does, right? He rebuilds ruins. He takes, he takes the forgotten areas of our life, the places where we've done nothing to nurture and help them grow, and he puts them back together. So Elijah rebuilds the altar, verse 31, and he took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, the original 12 tribes of Israel, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. This is roughly seven to eight liters when we convert here. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So Elijah takes, he takes the, the, the same process that was followed by the prophets of Baal, except what he does is he, he asks for all of this water to be poured on it. And that water runs down the altar. And it runs down into a place where it fills a trench that would have held seven to eight liters of water around it. The offering is, the, 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 the sacrifice is saturated. In verse 36, then it says, At the time of the offering of the oblation, or at the end of the day, at the very, very end. Again, this is, not, this is no accident in the storytelling. This offering was given when all else was done. When all other offerings had been presented. This was the last one of the day. And Elijah the prophet came near, verse 36, and he said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know you, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So we have this, this encounter Elijah, he goes into Moscow to fight, right? He goes up on the mountain 
into a place that once stood as a place of God, but now it stands as a temple, as a, as a site of worship for the foreign God. So he goes into their turf, and, and he, he, they offer their sacrifice, and there's no answer. No one is there to respond, because Baal is no God. And Elijah, and I, I love the fact that he does this, he calls the people into this. He doesn't do this alone. He calls them in, right? It's a little bit like the end of Rocky IV, right? When they're chanting, Rocky, Rocky. Anyway, so he calls them in. He calls them in. And he gathers them around and he prays. And notice what he prays. God, you are God. You're the only one. We're here serving you not these other gods. And then he says, this is all in in verse uh, 36, he says, we're doing this according to your word. We're living, what we're carrying out, we're doing it consistently with what you have told us to do. Now please, God, use that to turn people's hearts. And that's the story. That's the story. And it's a nice story. But it's fair to ask, okay, nice story, but so what? So what? It's a nice story, but fire from heaven, bulls on altars, it all seems a little strange. But I would present to you this, that while the the, the circumstances surrounding it and the, the activities may look different from our own, I would say that several things that were very true in this moment that we've read here in 1 Kings 18 are true of us right now. And the first is this. We're stuck in droughts. Can we be honest about this? We're stuck in drought. You may not personally at the moment feel it, but, we, but it happens to us. We feel it. It, 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 it can happen corporately in, in our churches and in our schools and in our families where we get stuck in these droughts. And we have a dry season. And sometimes the drought is because we've directly done something. I'm talking about spiritual drought, right? Sometimes the drought is because we've done something, but sometimes the drought is simply just kind of the current that we're in, the the path that we're walking. And the altars that once stood in our life to God, they kind of start to go into disrepair. The things that we've done, the, the, the times that we would look back on and say, that is where God spoke to me. That is where I, I met him. They're just sort of operating in our memory. And they're not present in our life now. And when drought becomes corporate, when dry, spiritual dryness, it isn't just true of me and my life, but it becomes true of what's happening with me and, and those around me. Sometimes it's my choices that, that bring spiritual dryness to others. And oftentimes it's others that are innocent. My spiritual dryness has impact on my family. It has impact on the people in my neighborhood that, are, that, 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 that I'm, I'm the, I am the voice of God for them. And yet my spiritual dryness just keeps me on the sidelines where there's a choice that needs to be made. Are we going to limp back and forth 
What are we going to do? And I stand back and say nothing because I'm just sort of parched. We go through periods of drought. It happens. And I would guess, I don't have to guess, I'm certain, (laughs) that in the room today, there's more than a handful of us that would say, yeah, that's kind of me. I remember saying yes to God, and I remember the feeling of of joy or the the, the power that came along with it, but I'm, I'm not experiencing it now. It's, it's, it's in my past. It, I can see it, but it's in my rearview mirror. We go through these periods of drought. And I think that what we find in those periods of drought is that oftentimes in those periods of drought, we're worshiping the idols of our land. You see what was happening with the people? They were just sort of silent. They were just silent. When Elijah says, which direction are you going to go? They didn't say one thing or another. They just sort of sat back. And I think it has to do with the fact that that I'm an idolatrous person. I worship idols. I I don't have little carvings in my home. I mean, I do, but those are just bobbleheads and gnomes and they're decorative. But I don't I don't I don't make prayers to them. Well, except for like the Ohio State ones. Sometimes those prayers don't get answered. Right? Ouch. But but we we don't we, we if we if we take idolatry and make it simply about some sort of paganism, that's not really what we're wrestling with. What we're wrestling with is what the idols represented. You see, they didn't these people weren't worshiping the idols because they necessarily believed that that, 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 that object was animated by, by like real life. They worshiped the idol because they believed that somehow it provided an outcome that they wanted. They wanted the crops to grow, and so they worshiped a god or goddess of rain. They wanted their pleasure to be longer lasting, so they worshiped a god of, of drink and song. And they built these idols... And, and the thing about idol worship, Andy Crouch, who's an author, teacher, um, speaker, he, he, says, he says, the thing about idols is this. When you're first introduced to an idol, they almost always ask you for nothing and promise you everything. They ask you for very little. Oh, just come on and try this. Come along and see. But he says, over time, what happens is that idols wind up taking and everything and giving very little. They wind up the idols in our life, they wind, up, they wind up taking over the territory. They just sort of absorb our life. So what kinds of idols are we, am I talking about? Let me give you some examples. And again, there's more than this. These are, this is, these are just examples. But I think here's some of the idols that we worship. I think that we worship idols of pleasure and comfort. Okay? If, this is, if, if we can talk about American idolatry, we worship idols of pleasure and comfort. We have... We, we, we live with the belief that somehow, like, sex is going to give us a better life. That if, if we just can, can experience it the right way or get enough of it or whatever, it's going to, it's going to solve our problems. Then maybe I'm the only one that thinks that. Okay? But I don't think so. 
And so we get absorbed by it until it starts to control our life and, it, and, and it starts to, we start to dive into things that we would have said in a sane and rational moment, we would have said were unseemly. But we go further and further down that trail until, until the idol controls us and it's taking and giving, taking everything and giving nothing. It's why multiple health departments in different states are identifying pornography as a public health crisis. The secular governments of these states are saying, we can't, we can't say nothing about this. It's robbing our culture. But it's an idol that we worship. Or comfort, the, the, the God of comfort, having my life arranged in a certain way. The God of fun. I just want to have a good time. And so we set up this, like, this idea that if I just go through my life and I have fun more than I don't, somehow I'm going to be fulfilled and my life is going to be a better life. And so we begin to do things to worship that idol, right? We, we begin, I mean, this is, but this is where the, the, the binging of, of entertainment comes in. It's where the, the living for the weekend comes in. It's where the overindulgence in, in, in consumption and alcohol comes in. And we think that, that having, having that fun is somehow going to be able to sustain us. It's going to give, us, give our life something that it, it's currently lacking. And it, it, what may start as a very little thing turns into something much larger when we make an idol of it. I think we also have idols of image or prestige. Right? Like, how do I look? How do people perceive me? And initially, it might even start innocently enough. Like, I just, I, I, you know, I don't want people to look down on me. I don't, want, I don't want anybody to think that I'm a fool. I don't want anybody to maybe even, we might even spiritualize it, right? And say, like, I need to do certain things because if I'm weird, they'll never listen to what I have to say about God. And so we start to move down this, towards this idol of cool, And as we get older, that one's a little, maybe, a little easier to avoid. But I think young people hear that, this, this, this drive to be cool, that somehow if I can be good enough for everyone around me, that somehow it's going gonna, it's gonna to animate my life and give my life purpose and meaning, and it doesn't. It, what winds up happening is that we wind up becoming someone who's so focused on what others think about us that, that the perspective that others have on us winds up swallowing us whole. We're giving everything we've got to that cause, and we're, all we're getting back is the anxiety of never knowing if we're good enough. It's an idol that we worship. But the, the image thing comes in, too, with the perfectionism. I've got to get things right. Things have to be perfect. My home has to look a certain way. I have to get the highest grades People have to know that I'm, I'm successful. And so we wind up pursuing these things. We work ourselves to the point that we've neglected people that are important, but our souls. And again, the idol consumes our life. It's what happens to us. I'd say, too, we have one more idol, and this one is, this is hard for me, as a, particularly as a parent. But I think we have idols of safety and security. I think, I think this one is particularly true of us in 21st century America. We believe somehow that if we, if we give our energy and effort and time and resources over to certain things, that it's somehow going to protect us from possible calamity. 
that if I have enough money stored up, I can, I can somehow buy my way out of any trouble. Or if I live in a certain neighborhood, that I can avoid the, the, the trouble that comes from being in other places. And we wind up chasing that. It's this, this God of safety and security, this idol. And it winds up controlling us, and we, we don't hear God speaking into our situation. And, and here's the thing about the idol of safety and security is that so often God is saying to us, take a risk. In this story, Obadiah has to take a risk in order to bring Ahab and Elijah together. Elijah has to take the risk of going up on this mountain in the face of all of these people and a death sentence that Ahab and Jezebel had put on his head. But the mighty work of God wouldn't be done if Elijah decided to stay in the safety of his hiding. And so we have to identify what's going on in our lives, the idols that we worship. But we do. We worship these idols. How do we identify yours? How do you identify yours? I, I, again, I, I've got mine, and I've shared some. But I think we have to ask some questions. And the first question I think we should ask is this. What is it that you're counting on in life? Like, what, what is it that ultimately in the end you're banking on giving you a better life? What is it? I mentioned those things. Is it comfort? Is it pleasure that that's going to give you a better life? Is it safety and security? Is it accomplishment, image, people thinking a certain thing? When we start to answer that question honestly, we're getting nearer to the place where our idols are built. The second question that I would ask would be this. What, what is it? <clears throat> what is in your life that when it gets threatened, the gloves come off? <laughs> what is it that you will fight like crazy to protect and that any threat to it might as well be a threat on your life. What is, it, what is it that you're pursuing, that you're chasing, that when someone comes in and speaks and says, are you sure that this is an appropriate pay, that you're paying out, that you're giving an appropriate offering for that thing you're trying to achieve? And then suddenly all bets are off. How dare you? How dare you question my, the way I handle my, my money? How dare you question the way that I parent? How dare you question the way that I spend my free time? And we start to fight over it. So someone recently also said, said nothing, nothing reveals the idols of a parent like having a young child. Okay? Because as soon as the young child starts to speak into the idolatry of the parent, the parent immediately goes into discipline. <laughs> okay? But I would also say nothing speaks to the idolatry of our children like when parents speak into and begin to threaten their idols and the gloves come off. You see, we see this. We recognize it. We know when it's happening in others, and yet we've got this sort of blindness to it. But where do we fight? What do we fight to protect and then I would ask this, this last question on this. What do you, where is it that you're giving in your life way more than you're getting back? What is the thing in your life that you're giving all of this time, all of your time, energy, and resources into, and yet when you are honest in assessing, 
you're just not getting back in a proportionate manner. What is that thing? I mean, I mentioned some, but I may not have specifically mentioned yours. But can you answer those questions? And can we do this honestly? And so what do we do when we find them? Oh, my. What do we do when we find them? Hey, Bruce, can you advance me one? I've lost control up here. <laughs> the last thing is that we have to slaughter the idolatry. <laughs> Notice what happens at the end of the story. Elijah's not messing around. He doesn't try to make accommodation for it. He doesn't try to say, no, 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 no. I can, I can do the, the God thing, and we can have the, the idol over here. I can have God, and I can worship my perfection image. I can have God, and I can worship my sexual desire. I can have God, and I can worship the security that I believe my, my bank account provides me. That's not his answer. His answer is, you have to slaughter it. It has to die. So stop making offerings to it. Cut it off. Starve it. What is it? Say no to it. Say no to the, to the idol. Reject its lies. You see, idols lie to us. The idolatry, all of these, all of these things, they lie to us. They tell us that if we, if we follow their path, their prescribed path, we're going to get what we want. We start to say, I'm just not going to enjoy my life if I have a pleasure idol. I wouldn't enjoy life without this thing. When we hear those things, we have to reject the lie. We have to name it. We might say that, you know, people will think less of me if I stop doing this thing or if I do what God has. They'll think less of me and we've got an image idol and we have to reject the lie. The first lie is that it matters what those people think about me. Ultimately, it doesn't. We have to reject the lie that says, if I don't do this thing, I'm going to get hurt. Those of us with safety and security idols. That somehow I can set up these boundaries and barriers in my life so that I don't get hurt. And that it is a lie. There is no boundary big enough that will keep us from getting hurt. There is, there, there is no... No way that we can wall ourselves off from the pain of the world that, we're, that we live in. The drought will get you whether you try to keep yourself safe or not. So we have to reject the lie. We have to starve the idol and reject the lie. And then, as it said in 1 Kings 18, verse, one, yeah, verse 21, we have to answer this question that Elijah posed. How long will we go limping between the two different opinions? How long are we going to vacillate or waver between the idols of our land and, and God who calls us to something different? We have to answer that question. Because as if we're standing at the edge of the river and the, the current is heading one way and we know that God is found upstream. How long are we going to continue to... Hop in and float a while and then try to swim back. And... But we have to kill the idols. The idols are incompatible with the life of God in me. I'd like to end by um, reading the end of chapter 18. Remember, they'd been in a drought. <clears throat> they'd been in a drought. 
And while I read, if the worship team, we've got one more song, if the worship team would come up to help us close, I'm going to read this passage as a prayer. But this is the end of the 1 Kings 18 story. This is after the, the, idolatry, the, the, the uh, prophets of Baal had been killed. Verse 41 says, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. God will send the rain to end the drought. But how long are we going to waver between the two? How long? 